Hi, I'm Mark Rosewater, and this is The Men in Magic. How many IQ points would you sacrifice for an inch more vertically? Famous uh, uh, problem that I've given people. So uh, if you want the background of that question, you know, I, I, I asked that to people for years and years and years. Um, and uh, it, it's a it's a yeah, it's a check on many things about someone. And then it, when they answer, you know, I would say 90 percent of the time I've gotten an answer at zero. And then when they answer zero, then you can change it to how many IQ points would you you give for a foot of vertical leap? And, and then if it's still zero, it pretty Pretty clearly, I just don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to hang out with you. Uh, <laughs> you've got a you've got a very skewed view of the world. Um, my standard answer to that question that I've given uh, very consistently uh, is, I, I think you know, um, the definition changes, but usually eighty IQ is sort of considered um, borderline mentally challenged, uh, and so my, you know my answer is. Um, trade me down to 80, and once I'm there, I'll decide whether or not I want to go the rest of the way. <laughs> now that I've got one of the original founders of Magic the Gathering, yourself, Peter Atkinson, Richard Garfield, it was referenced in an article. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's an odd way to to state it. Certainly, um, certainly, Richard and Peter are. So much more important than anyone else. Uh, every, everybody else is is really, really, really far behind them. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah. So it's hard to say a six. I mean, I'm I'm certainly in the top n, but I don't I don't know I don't know. You know, if you're counting down to six, you know, if I would be in the top six or uh, or, or or if I am, who the other uh, people in there were. So I I would like to state that. Uh, yeah, I think that's a little bit. Uh, whoever first said it, it's a it's a it's a crazy oversimplification. Other than it's pretty clear that Richard and Peter are the are the, the biggest two. Um, so, how did this all come together? Uh, well, so um, the, the the biggest thing I think to realize about the history of magic is that there were two sides. There was the West Coast side, which was Peter and the other people at um, at Wizards of the Coast who got in contact with uh, originally a guy called Mike Davis, who was a friend of Richard's. And then uh, through Mike Davis, uh, Peter and Richard got hooked up. And then Richard, uh, uh, you know, was obviously was on the East Coast, but he, he went back and forth. And uh, Richard was really the conduit. And then there were a bunch of us on the East Coast, uh, all fellow grad students of Richard, who we, we had no, essentially zero access to anything that was going on. It all, it all went through Richard. So as far as we could tell, you know, he would type some Internet messages occasionally and once every <laughs> year, uh, you know, fly out there. But uh, we, we had no real insight until, you know, pretty close to the game launch about what, what was really going on on the other side of the country. So that that's the viewpoint from me and a couple of the other people who were you, you would call in the research and development uh, end of it, like the playtesters. Uh, and then you know we we did a lot more than playtest, but uh, uh, yeah, we were all uh, in a box really at the University of Pennsylvania. So that's what it was like. It was like uh, you know Richard would come up with an idea, we'd mess around with it, um, all sort of uh, in the halls there. 
on the fourth floor of uh, David Rittenhouse Laboratory at University of Pennsylvania. How crazy was it at first when he came up with this concept to you guys? Um, no, it was clear that it would work from the first time you, you played it. Uh, he didn't, he didn't talk to anyone about it really, uh, until he had already had a, an alpha version. And he played the original alpha version with a guy called, uh, Barry Reich first bit, uh, as, uh, we called him, who was in the computer science department. And, uh, he immediately liked it. And then I think I was the, probably the next person to play. And, uh, I immediately liked it. And I don't, I don't think there was anyone there who played it and, and I mean anyone it was pretty obvious that it would work not just work but work great uh, from the get-go now a lot of that is that nobody uh, had any real experience in the game industry so we didn't know what work meant I mean sure is it is it going to be a good game of course like uh, that, that, that that was obvious to everyone who ever played it immediately and I, and I can remember taking it around to a lot of other people like you know friends at game conventions and stuff like that and, and it was just instantaneous I mean no one that ever played it had any doubt uh, from the beginning but that's that's really different like if you showed it a, a game that good to me today you know I would say that's that's obviously a great game but we didn't have that but um, because we didn't we didn't actually know the difficulties of going from a great game to uh, a successful product. What was it like when you first saw that Magic Gathering was outselling games like Monopoly in Trivial Pursuit? Um, it's interesting. I don't know how late into it we knew that. Uh, I mean, it, it was certainly... And, and, and it's not because we didn't... You know, I'm obviously we knew what our sales were, but I don't think we had a really good handle on exactly what Monopoly sales were. Um, and so it, uh, yeah, it was weird. I mean, I mean, I, I think the the more sort of proper basis of comparison for us at the time was Dungeons and Dragons, because you you could talk to people in the hobby channel and get a really good idea of what Dungeons and Dragons was selling. And you knew you were doing way better than that. And you knew they were selling more outside the hobby than you were. So, but still you were, you knew you were so dominant in the hobby channel that that, that was really the point of comparison. And so for something like Monopoly, it was, uh, I, I would say the, the first time a thought like that popped into our head, we, we were, um, yeah, we were already very successful. If that makes sense. You know what I mean? It, it was, we just didn't know what their sales were, uh, in any sort of clear, way so it wasn't uh it wasn't that and and also you know you you buy one of those games and um and you're done and a lot of people play in the in a group whereas with magic obviously one person can spend a ton of money and a speculator can buy a ton of cards so we never we never really felt in any sense that we were uh, bigger than monopoly because we knew that that they always had way more player it, it always had way more players than we did so uh, if that makes any sense, we just didn't. It wasn't a. It wasn't a milestone. Whereas Dungeons and Dragons was. Let's go back to Richard for a minute. You've known him for. Yeah, it was 1991 when I met him. So uh, how, uh, how how long is that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> 20, twenty years. Twenty more than twenty years. Yes, yeah, so it's been more than twenty years. Yeah. So sorry. Go, I just wanted to correct that. Yeah. No. So anyway, tell us a little bit more about Richard the man. So. Um, 
<laughs> again, it requires a little bit of context. You're in a, a math, you're in a, a, a math department. So, um, Richard, like if you met him on the street, in that context, he might seem a little bit odd. You know, well, kind of quirky, professory, uh, you know, hyper intelligent, a little bit distant at times, you know, uh, thinking about stuff. But in the context of a math department, he was, you know, one of the more normal guys. So, uh, so, so, so when you first met him, uh, it wasn't, you know, for me, it was, it was, uh, not that big a deal. The, the, uh, his, his, his particular personality quirks were almost normal. Uh, and the thing that's amazing about Richard is that, uh, despite, is that he, first of all, one thing that did shine through was his, um, you know, his, uh, his, a love of games. I mean, he really enjoyed, uh, playing games. Uh, with a passion, and, and so that was uh, very engaging, right? It was very uh, interesting, he, he, you know, like for him to break the ice and always be around to, you know, kind of play games with you and, and whatever. That that was one thing. And the other thing too is he's just a super nice guy, and so you you had a lot of people, um, you know, uh, as weird as him, as smart as him, as whatever as him, but there were, there was almost no one in the department as nice as him. In addition to the fact that he he uh, you know was applying his intelligence to this uh, very um, you know, entertaining problem, which was games. So when you have a gift, no matter what it is, whether you usually give up something in the process, and normally that's personality. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting to hear you say that that he had such a good personality. Yeah, I can say um, you know. Uh, I guess he might be mad at me if I say this, but like, uh, you know, knowing other people in the game industry, um, there are possibly other people as smart and creative as his. I, I don't know as he is. I don't know of any, uh, like that, are, that I would say, oh yeah, that person is smarter than Richard or that person is, uh, is more creative than Richard. I mean, he's at the top. But, you know, realistically, there, there might be some other people kind of in that category. Uh, what stands out about him is that I, I don't, I can't think of anyone as nice as he is. That's in that top tier. I mean, he's just nicer than all those other people. I, I really believe that. So, uh, in addition to probably being the smartest, most creative, but maybe you know, maybe there's some people close. In addition to that, yeah, it's a defining characteristic of him. I really think he's just a he's just a great person. He had his creative influence on this last set that's out right now. Oh, oh okay, yeah. When someone like that steps away from the game. And then comes back to the game and gives a little bit. Is it hard? I mean, would it be hard to come back and say, I'm going to try to again put my stamp on the game? Uh, not really. I mean, um, you know, it, it might be hard for some people. For Richard, uh, it's, he's done a lot of things since Magic that are, uh, much, I don't know, uh, much more creative and, and require more of his intelligence than coming back and doing another magic set. So, uh, now obviously, you know, but they're not necessarily successful, but, uh, no, I, I don't, and I don't, I don't think for him, if, if he had to do it set after set after set, uh, that would be, a, I think, a true challenge for him. Like if he was the only person designing magic cards, and he had to do it for five years in a row. Yeah, that that would be 
that would be rough. Uh, maybe he could pull it off. There's very few people that could. If anyone could, it would be him. But no, to come back, um, you know, take a couple years, come back. Uh, R- Richard's really amazing. He's not, uh, he is not normal. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I really, uh, I don't think, my guess is it probably wasn't that difficult for him to jump in every three or five years and, and come up with some new ideas. You're considered the godfather of the Pro Tour. When the thought came to something like the Pro Tour, how did this concept all come together? Uh, I mean, there's a couple different ways into it. Uh, you, you, um, you know, first of all, I was the like the brand Brandon, I guess Brandon, business manager for the Pro Tour. Uh, I'm sorry for Magic. Um, and so you're always thinking of ways, you know, creative ways to 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 market the game, and uh, you know, and, and you try to think, well, what's you know, what's unique about the game? Why why what's something that we can leverage about it that uh, other people can't? And of course, the collectability is part of it. But but if you, if you studied very much, you would know that that's um, a d- dead end is too harsh of a term, but it's a, a sort of limited time horizon to make something. Uh, 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 an, an effective collectible for a long time. So it was really, you know, you, you could pick down to the basics of the game, and also in a collectability sense, you don't you don't actually have a competitive advantage there over other products. Whereas, whereas the game, the core of the game itself and the game design had some really strong things going for it that there was there was no other product anything like it. Um, the closest things in terms of how engaging they could be over a long period of time were like chess and go. There are a couple other examples, but the, those are the most famous ones. And they had an interesting um, limitation in that they were fixed games. And so at some point, uh, the type of um, mental effort that you would have to go through in those games was uh, would would require, um, you know, I guess a lot of study, uh, and uh, it, chess has this very interesting thing where in the beginning go goes somewhat similar in that in the beginning, you know, you're you're learning. It's a it's this sort of raw application of talent and uh, and intelligence, and then and then uh, and then there's this time where there's a lot of creativity involved. Uh, in what you're doing in order to become a better player. And then, by virtue of the fact that those games have lasted for such a long time, your intuition and your creativity that you start to build up um, have to take a second um, position to uh, just intense study. You need to go through that intense uh, study portion in those games because there has been so much intuition and creativity put into them over hundreds of years. Um, and that's when a lot of people drop out. Now, if you push through that and you get to the high levels again in, in, in those things, then you know you, you do get back to this area where intuition, creativity, raw intelligence are all you know really important again. Um, but but it's that middle ground that it was very interesting because a game like Magic could skip past that by by virtue of the fact that it was um, there. There were continually new cards coming out. Uh, uh, you, it was very difficult for there to be anything like a, a book, uh, you know, 
that, that you would have in chess, uh, in magic. It was sort of constantly throwing these people into the area where, um, uh, their intuition and creativity was, uh, w- w- was sort of always a high portion of the intellectual effort you'd have to put toward the game. Huge competitive advantage. Like, like it was, it was an intellectual sport that, um, that was, uh, sort of taking the, the cream of the crop, the most fun, you know, parts of it to, to do for people. I mean, it had negatives too, uh, you know, because of the randomness and, uh, and 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 other things involved in it. It wasn't quite as um, uh, accurate in skill testing at, at every single uh, match you played. Uh, you know, potential drawbacks. You 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 never knew, like you did with chess and go, going into it, that it was going to be around in ten or fifteen years, uh, or twenty years, or fifty years. And so, um, so there, there was all that lingering doubt, not just in your mind, but in us as creators, you know, could, could we keep it going? We didn't know in the beginning. So despite the drawbacks, you know, we had this very clear idea of what made magic special. What, what made it, uh, like in terms of its value for a young, uh, you know, a young kid, uh, a smart kid, what, you know, why was that more of va- like there were, there was, there was no other thing that they could do, we felt. Uh, that that would provide them with that that special uh, uh, intellectual uh, challenge, uh, yeah. So uh, so we knew we had that, and then at the same time we also knew that there was a serious problem because of the speculation and collection, uh, and uh, it, it was great in the beginning because someone could go buy a box of cards and. Um, and make money by buying cards because uh, they could always sell it later because we would always print to order. And uh, people think we tried to intentionally short the market. We never, ever, ever did that. Uh, well, at least <laughs> not while I was there. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and so people could make money by buying cards. And, and the problem was that that was sort of a dead-end proposition because um, – because you had these old cards that were very valuable, like say Black Lotus, that was driving a lot of um, mystique and value, and that meant that it was sort of impossible to have it be a serious intellectual sport in the long run because there was a limited number of Black Lotuses. So you know, what, what, where, where do you go from there? And the same thing with just the general speculation; it, it was too expensive for. Um, for most people to kind of get into uh, into the game if you were going to allow all the cards. So now you've got these two things coming together, right? And one is uh, it, one is um, you you want it to be seen as an intellectual sport because you want it to last longer than just a fad, longer than just a, um, how how normal most people play games. You say what uh, if we if we've got this amazing you know tiger by the tail. So how do we, you know, uh, how do we maximize value on it? We could have blown out, um, you know, essentially just blown out, uh, printing cards, you know, keeping them as rare for as long as possible. And, and then once the, the, the luster started to fade, just, just, uh, blow out them printing wise. And there's been a million other products with that kind of value proposition in the recent past of magic, like the trading cards. And uh, comic books and, and stuff like that that had gone through that cycle was a sort of a common one, and we we had a really good idea of how long that could last. If you take a sport, you know, if we could achieve what chess achieved uh, in terms of um, a person's lifelong commitment 
to it, to the, to the game. Then, you know, there, there was sort of no end in sight. I, I mean, you, you could keep people in the game for years and years and years and, uh, at, at any, earning level that they would happen to have you know it's not just oh i could speculate on comic books when i'm 13 and of course once i get a job that that's all silly um so 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 pushing the intellectual sport at the same time that we um we kind of wanted to uh shake out a lot of the speculation and the rarity from the market so that's sort of how the pro tour came about is um on the one hand you know telling people uh uh yeah it was okay to treat this like an intellectual sport it was okay to say i am a magic player and so, so this is all coming from you know what what would i have liked if i were a kid you know what what would have been cool for me um how you know how could i um uh, sort of uh you know uh, you really give people the value back for putting the time and effort and money into the game. So, um, so that that's on the one side, and on the other side is we've got this massive problem with speculation uh, going on, and so uh, and the old cards and the value in the old cards, and so how 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 do we deal with that if we want the game to have a, a lasting long term and, and not just be for a few rich people? So the pro tour came about. Uh, yeah, essentially as a solution to those two problems, kill kill two birds with one stone. So, um, so uh, you know, we, we live in America, and if you if you want if you want to tell people that what they're doing is worthwhile, there's a universal way to do that. We'll just put put money on it, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so so the kid who uh, got all his magic cards put together some great decks, was the best player in his local area. Like, he didn't just have to come back and say to his friends in school, hey, I'm the best player at Bob's Game Dungeon. Okay, great, but, you know, but if he comes back and he says, yeah, you know what, I went to a Grand Prix and um, I, just, I just made 3000 bucks. I mean, that that has real meaning. That, that has, uh, it, uh, a lot of people are going to look at that and say, Okay, well, I guess that isn't really a waste of time. Um, and, uh, and even internally, like even for yourself, you know, you, 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 it's something to feel proud of. It's a very sort of, um, it's the clearest possible way to show someone that there's value in, in what they're doing. How did you determine I guess it all the the whole logistics of the thing because yeah actually sorry before I get to that let me tie back this other thread that I've been talking about which is that um so uh so then at the pro tour level you can say now you have this opportunity where if we came out without a pro tour and we said you know what guys we think you should only play with the last two years worth of cards uh, because then the super super duper expensive cards uh, you don't have to play with and nobody would have done it. Uh, it would have been laughed at, and uh, people would have kept playing their Type 1 tournaments, and their Type 1 tournaments would have, I still call it Type 1, uh, it, and their Type 1 tournaments would have just gotten smaller and smaller every year until about three years later, there, you know, the game was dead. Uh, so at the same time that it was this great value for the people that were participating in, say, an intellectual sport, um, it was also a way of bribing people into uh, switching their normal mode of play into something that, was sustainable forever, long term. So, um, uh, right, we didn't have pro tours based on you know type one stuff. Anyway, 
So, right. So those both happened at the same, at the same time. So back to your question about how you determine the payouts. Uh, study. I mean, we, um, took the attitude that, uh, we didn't know what we were doing because we didn't. So, um, we, we studied everything and, and it, it does bother me. I think a lot of people, I mean, I've seen this in a lot of other games and sometimes with what we do, people want to sit around in a room and say, oh, hey, let's come up with a cool idea of how the Pro Tour should run for game X or whatever. Uh, to me, that's uh, very, like, that's just very short-sighted, and it's kind of egotistical, and it's um, it's probably more often than not going to lead to failure. I mean, that's not what we did. We sat down and we studied everything. We took every possibly applicable sport. We looked at failed sports. We so like some of the examples of what we did. We studied chess intensely. Uh, uh, everything that they did, their tournament structure, their rating structure, um, uh, what was open, what was you know required qualification, uh, and then we looked at a lot of individual sports, which were much more applicable than team sports. We studied a lot of golf, a lot of tennis, uh, and in fact, the person who uh, sort of, if I'm called the the godfather of the Pro Tour, uh, the person who's the father of the Pro Tour is a guy called Rick Ahrens. Uh, and so, sure, it was initially my idea, but he, he was the guy that, and he came from a sports background, a tennis background. I think his, I think his brother played professionally. He was certainly a, a, an exceptional tennis player in, in college. He ran a tennis magazine for a long time, was very strongly associated with that. So he understood, and he had a ton of connections to the tennis world. So studying tennis, because it's another individual sport um, that's, you know, cash tournaments all over the nation at various different levels from grassroots all the way up to, you know, Wimbledon. Um, golf, same thing. So we studied a lot of tennis and golf. We we looked really hard at other hobbies. Um, how much money, for instance, per year? Like this is how we set a lot of the um, release schedules in the beginning. How much money per year would you expect to spend if you were a competitive golfer, a competitive tennis player, a competitive, you know, um, uh, basketball player? Like uh, you just play basketball. So a lot of people are like, oh, magic costs a lot of money. When you really dig into, well, how much does basketball cost? It's not free, like uh, most people think, because you got to buy some shoes and some outfits and some. It's mostly the shoes, by the way, uh, and uh, you know, and a basketball. Not everyone buys one, and you average that price out, and you're spending, you know, well more than a hundred dollars a year uh, for basketball, and much, much more than that for things like golf. And so you, you look at all these, and you just kind of lay them out, and you say, well, this is how much people spend on something that's their hobby and their sport stick magic, you know, in the middle of that range as far as how much money we would expect you to spend on cards and going to tournaments across the course of a year. Uh, and then we hired a lot of people that um, we, we got, uh, can, we, we hired consultants from um, sports management agencies. We talked to uh, f- former, you know, head of marketing for Major League Baseball and, and we hired people that worked in uh, tennis uh, and, uh, you know, they were probably... We had a long-term consulting contract uh, uh, with um, uh, a sports management agency. We met with a lot of other people. We ha- hired two or three of them on staff for a while. We hired a guy who helped run chess tournaments. So, I mean, we we brought in as much expertise as we possibly could from uh, parallel things. So that that's the answer to your question. Is like, how do you come up with the payouts? Well, you you know, 
you write your goals down. You ask other people in other sports what their goals were. You see how they correspond to your goals, and then you uh, do studies of what was successful and was not, and, and, you, and you you pick among them. Oh, sorry, bridge is another great example as a as a card game. What did bridge do wrong? How did bridge fail? Why did bridge fail? Um, uh, there's there's a lot of reasons for that. At least we thought so. What was a normal week like for you at work? Well, I. Um, there were a couple years from 90, basically from 94 to 96, where I had two jobs there. I was still in R&D, so I was still creating card sets, and, um, and, and not just for Magic, but working on other games. Um, and that was half of my day. And then the other half of my day was working on the business stuff. Uh, because we we had a lack of business expertise at the time, I and mean, eventually, by the time I got out in '96, we hired some people that you know supposedly knew what they were doing, and uh, and, and eventually, <laughs> no, eventually, the, uh, you know, it, it's certainly the case. I mean, I, I think Magic's probably not just Magic. Wizards of the Coast is probably better run now than you know more or less it's ever been. I mean, I'm sure there's fluctuations up and down, but um, but there's a degree of professionalism that we lacked at the time, so. Uh, the default was um, just a disaster management-wise where there was no one in charge of anything, and then Peter would make some decisions, but he had to run the company in general, and then so uh, and people that thought that they knew what they were doing really didn't. So I got put in charge uh, of uh, magic on the business side, uh, and um, so that was the other half of my day. So what was my day like? I mean, I would, I, I tell people this and nobody believes me, but I, but I promise you it's true. You know, I, I would work, um, you know, I would work, uh, I, I would work 120 hour weeks. I mean, I, I would work probably, I probably averaged, I mean, there was a year when I might have averaged a hundred hours working a week, um, with, but maybe it was more. I mean, certainly, I mean, I would sleep at work. Yeah, so, so what was my day like? I had no day. Uh, it was just, you know, you work all day long and then you work all night long and I slept under my desk and, uh, I would shower at work. Uh, for a while I would go, you know, I would set my alarm, uh, wake up, drive home, shower, sleep for half an hour, 45 minutes. Uh, cause I'd already slept at work, you know, a little bit. But I, I, I sort of I had this like uh, idea in my head that I needed to go home in order to, that that way I could qualify as normal, and uh, and uh, and uh, yeah, sleep for half an hour. Set you know the alarm would go off, and sometimes I'd be thinking about stuff, and the alarm wouldn't like I would never go to sleep, and the alarm would go off. And then I would get back in the car and drive uh, back to work. The bad part about that was is that I I, I think I slept going to and from work as much as I did at home and uh and uh, you know or sleep on the side of the road or whatever so that, that was I don't recommend that to anyone I recommend just staying at work uh and then eventually yeah you know I, I mean I, I I lived at work for a, a month or two until I think HR kicked me out um yeah so that's what what life was like and then I would go on these trips I would go like to printers to find uh, new printers and go on print checks and uh, I can remember every flight I ever took you know going east was a red eye and it was my favorite time. Like, I loved the red eyes because I got nothing else to do on the plane. You know, I could just sleep. <laughs> so it was like, it was like the most restful, you know, these like, 
one day trip to ten sites in Wisconsin or whatever uh, printers in Wisconsin was like the, was like just the most restful time. So yeah, that's what my life was like for two years. You don't know this stuff unless you hear it. I mean, how hard was it to switch from R and D brain to business brain? So I've actually given a couple talks on this at ver- like at various uh, like at um, GDC and uh, and stuff. I I think it was a big advantage. Um, uh, the I think that maybe the, the all, I'm probably going to get the title wrong, but the title of one of my talks was the intermixing of uh, business and uh, and game design, specifically in I think I use the term distributed object games because. They want digital object games, but of course it applies to TCGs or miniatures games or whatever. There's a there's a really interesting um, uh, interlinking that most people, most comp, I should say, most companies, most products never get. They just don't. Um, they just don't uh, understand. Like for instance, if you you know I set the I'm a I'm the marketing guy and I set the price point of my product and it's three dollars a booster pack or virtual booster pack or or whatever it is, um, and I, you know, have asked my R and D guys how many cards the average person who wants to be competitive is going to buy and let's just say the competition in this particular case is is a, a core value of this uh, uh, a core part of the value proposition for the customer, so then some guy who's a junior level designer. You know, decides randomly for whatever reason, for flavor reasons, that he wants to switch such and such a dragon from, you know, medium to rare. And that turns out to be one of the cards that everybody has to have. And so now all of a sudden, um, what he's done for all practical purposes for your core customer, for the most important customers, he's actually changed the price on the product. Because you've got to buy seven booster packs instead of five on average before you get, you know, and so this incredibly minor decision that no, there's no company, there's no computer game company in the world that would say, oh, sure, you know, we'll just take a, a level designer. We'll take a level designer and have him set the price of our product. We'll let him fluctuate that within 25%. Like people would be terrified. Uh, and as well they should be, by the way. And so, uh, so it's interesting. In these types of games, the, the business and the, um, and the R&D just go hand in hand. They're intimately intertwined in a, in a million different ways. Um, and, uh, so yeah, no, I don't, we never thought of it that way. We, we had the business, uh, and I'm not going to say every single person in R&D thought this way and, but, but yeah, I mean, the business was very much in our mind in, uh, at the higher levels of R&D. Do you still have those speeches recorded somewhere? Is there a way of? Oh, the that thing. Uh, yeah, you know, you'd have to talk to the people at GDC. I believe that I signed some sort of thing where they have the rights to it, and so because I think they want to sell it. You know what I mean? Like you, you can pay for access to their old content and get the speech. Uh, so yeah, it's it's there. Uh, anyone can see it. It might be. I, I really don't. I really don't know how it works. But if you if you contact uh, GDC, uh, you will and ask them how you would get access to my talk. You, you um, uh, I'm sure they'll tell you. How long was that speech for? Uh, I think it was an hour. Would be my guess. It was either an hour or an hour and a half, but I'm I'm almost positive it was an hour. Um, I give talks at various conferences. I gave one at a conference called Practice uh, at NYU. Um, uh, Eric, I, I think there were other people besides Eric Zimmerman who put it together, but 
Um, but, but he was the guy who contacted me. That was a great conference. Uh, and so, you know, I gave a talk there. Um, that was, uh, and I've given several at GDC. So, and at different companies, I give talks. So, uh, yourself, people like John Becker, uh, have been supporting the, the thought of having Mike Long being in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why is that? Um, why do I support Mike Long being in the Hall of Fame? Uh, I can answer, I've got 50 different answers for that. Uh, one is that, uh, if you look at, uh, what he did, his accomplishments in terms of his victory over the course when he was playing, uh, he, he was, uh, you know, more or less unmatched, um, uh, during his time period. And in fact, even if, if you take that run, r- again, scaling for the time period in, in any kind of way, uh, you know, there's only a very few number of players that were better than him. You know, say, you know, John and Kai obviously were, and, uh, and, and now there's a couple other people in that conversation. So that, that's the first reason. The second reason is that, um, up until, gosh, I don't know, probably, you know, for the first, Five years of magic, if you added it all up, he was the single most talked about player. Uh, and I don't think anything, anybody would take that away from him. So you've got these two things, uh, you know, those are the, those are the main two reasons. I mean, uh, a lot of people, the only argument I've ever heard, uh, against, and I mean ever, uh, sorry, the only, the only reasonable argument I've yes. ever heard, uh, against him being in the hall is, um, that people considered him to be a cheater. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess you, you could take out anyone from any of the sports hall of fames who ever cheated, in which case you, it would be very odd, you know, uh, no one from the Pittsburgh Steelers teams of the 70s or 80s certainly should be on there because of their steroid use. And, uh, you know, and Ty Cobb should not be in the hall of fame. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's just, it's, 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 it's sort of petty. And ridiculous, you know, like, I'm, I'm sorry he cheated you guys, uh, you know, we tried to stop him. Mostly you guys should have shot, stopped him more. Uh, it's the players that he was cheated by that have a lot of the votes. It was a lot of people that disliked him that have a lot of the votes. And, uh, you know, Magic never had the, um, never had the sort of, uh, external press that a lot of sort of these other sports that have hall of fames have because uh it, i think i think just people have this incredibly narrow view because you know they were they were sitting across from them and they didn't you know if you asked someone a kid in 1999 who should be in the hall of fame and what he's done is uh seen the results of the tournaments read the press coverage of them uh, you know, gone to a couple events, maybe met the man once, like, that kid is gonna say, of course he should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, and so, yeah, no, I mean, those are, those are all the reasons for it. Um, I, I will say this, I, um, obviously he got, he got, there's, I think there might be other people currently in the Hall of Fame who have had, via, uh, DCI violations. I believe that's true. Um, I'm not, I'm not positive. But, uh, he, for sure, he cheated a lot less than people gave him credit for, which was very much on purpose on his part. So, the perception that I got when you talk about him is that he was constant, 
Like that's all he would do. And no. And some as someone who's played the game from beta. Uh-huh. And I've played an awful lot of card games in my life, and I know there's ways to cheat in everything. Yeah. To be able to do it constantly. He didn't. Take some skill. Like real <laughs> Well, that's true. That his record proves otherwise. Sure. I mean I mean you you know, you um you, you I know some of his detractors would not say this, but but I think basically um it's it's clear that he cheated, he got caught uh sometimes doing it. Um uh it, it it's it's also clear that he was a great player aside from that. So uh, you know that he needed those 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 two things, and you know there's just a lot of people that he supposedly cheated that didn't shuffle his deck, and uh, and I would talk to him. I mean, I talked to all these people afterward, and I would say, why won't, why would you not why would you not shuffle the man's deck? And you know, oh, I'm embarrassed too, or this or that, or the other thing, or it takes too much time, or. Blah blah blah. Just there's there's just a lot going on there that I think, uh, yeah, I don't know, not not naiveness. I think there was among a lot of Magic players. I mean, has there ever been a, a decent offensive lineman in the history of the NFL that that hasn't held in on three quarters of his plays? You know, or past plays? No, of course not. I mean, that that's that's part of what they do, and you don't. Yeah. Anyway. I, I have a different opinion of that uh, than than most people do, and uh, sorry, I'm gonna I, I know I'm gonna get a ten thousand emails when this thing gets posted, but uh, but I yeah I do I do believe that I do I do think that most of what he was accused of doing, the person sitting across from him could have uh, could have prevented, and I I also I mean you know we really tried to catch him at a lot of stuff. People think we tried to protect him and, and we didn't. And I, I'm positive, positive that he cheated far less than people believe he did. And again, uh, you know, that's part of his unfair advantage, right? Is if you think he's cheating, you're paying attention to that. And, and, and it, it does give him a huge advantage when you're nervous about that. There's no question about it. And sorry, I wish the world were a better place, but I, you know, that's just that's the nature of a competitive uh, that's the nature of a competitive event. Thank you for listening to the Meta Magic. You can contact me at themetamagic at gmail dot com, on Twitter under the Meta Magic, or my personal account the Beamy. This is Robert Martin, and again, thank you for listening. <laughs>